How can built-to-own single-family rentals be incorporated into an Opportunity Zone investment portfolio? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. How can single family rentals be incorporated into an Opportunity Zone investment portfolio. Here to discuss that and more with me today is the CEO and founder of Pintar Investment Company, Jeff Pintar. Jeff joins us today from his office in San Juan Capistrano, California. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, really glad to be here. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, glad to have you here with us today, Jeff. So let's get going here. Tell us a bit about your track record. You're not new to the real estate investment game. You've, you've been around for a little while, and maybe you can share your primary investment thesis with us as well. Yes, certainly. And, um, you know, it's interesting having just turned 50. You're, you're, you're right. Um, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm no longer the newbie in, in real estate, although, um, you know, I found this investment class of uh, single-family residential about 10 years ago, and and it's kind of created a renewed energy in in a reformed retail developer, as I used to be a retail developer, uh, you know, my first 20 years of my career. And so, um, you know, the, this new asset class of SFR uh, has continued to evolve and, um, you know, continues to make uh, the real estate investing industry extremely interesting for us older folks. And what is your investment thesis primarily? Uh, you're investing mo mostly in single-family rentals or SFR, as we'll abbreviate it throughout this podcast. What's your What's your theory on on why SFR is such a great asset class? So you know it's uh, it's interesting when I started in 2009, focusing our energy. In, in efforts and resources in, in SFR, it was primarily out of the, the housing crisis and the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, 2010. And, and, and really it was, the philosophy and thesis was based off of, you know, being able to make investments in, in smaller um, pieces, you know, making smaller bets where, you know, the theory was, you know, everybody needs a roof over their head. Um, even in the worst of times, uh, people are still going to want shelter. You know, outside of food and water, uh, shelter's the, the greatest requirement for, for humans. And, and what I've learned over the last decade, and as you study all of the demographics um, with population changes, household formation, uh, population growth, um, here in the United States, you know, with 330 million people, uh, we, we have a housing shortage, especially in the middle to lower uh, income levels or entry level housing. And it's hard to believe because, you know, when, when you fly into LAX and you look out your window and you see nothing but houses, um, it's hard to realize that we have a lack of new homes that have been built 
especially since the the GFC in 2008-2009. And and when you run through all the numbers, and I won't bore everybody here on it, you, you actually have a housing shortage because there's been a lack of new home construction in major metropolitan areas over the last 10 years because the affordability of building new homes, the cost of land, the cost of permits, um, all of those things compared with just the growing demand of population growth, household formation, you know, you got this whole millennial uh, 70 million people, you know, that are going to be moving into houses in the next five to seven years. There's just not enough housing to um, satisfy the demand. And, you know, our philosophy has been, you know, just try to get singles, try to get base hits, you know, a, a house at a time or a deal at a time. And, and what you realize is um, you can aggregate a nice portfolio of consistent cash flowing investments one base hit at a time and, and wake up 5, 10, 15 years with a really stable portfolio of cash flowing assets. And so that's always been our thesis. It's not trying to create something and take advantage of a moment in time. It's really focusing our energy and efforts towards the underlying uh, demand uh, of a product type that regardless of what's going on, and we can talk about COVID a little bit later, um, you know, what's, regardless of what's going on in the White House or overseas or politics, um, there's going to be demand for housing. And so we've we've always wanted to focus our energy and efforts towards those underlying factors uh, where the demand is, you know, outpacing the supply. And, and our belief is is housing fits that bill better than any other real estate asset class. Right. And now let's bring in opportunity zones into the equation. So tell me, what is your investment strategy for your opportunity zone fund? And I think what I'd really like to know is two things. One, could you characterize the breakdown of single family versus multifamily versus mixed use? I, you're doing a combination of all three of those asset classes. And then two, maybe you can characterize the approximate breakdown of new construction versus improving existing buildings. Yeah, certainly. Well, I'll, why don't I start with sort of the product type first, if, if that's what you're you want to get at, you know, and, and as it relates to within opportunity zones, you know, we, we believed that the single family residential, what we call kind of the build to rent communities, which is a new product type uh, that's been evolving in the SFR rental space over the last few years is, is really an attractive um, community or product for the consumers to live in. And so when we call it a build the rent community, think of it as a suburban uh, single family residential community with individual homes, uh, garage, driveway, yard, cul-de-sac, maybe an amenity center for that community, you know, self-contained. You know, historically that community would be um, filled with individual owners of homes. Um, but the product type that we're building and we're starting to see evolve is communities that instead of owners of individual homes, we have renters of individual homes. And, and we call that uh, a build-to-rent community. 
And, and what's interesting is a lot of these communities happen to fit within opportunity zones. Um, as, as we know, 2017, the tax laws that, that came about and about 8,800 opportunity zones were created <clears throat> around the country. And uh, several of these developments or lands um, fit within these opportunity zones. Now, now, we thought they were great investments even without the opportunity zone. But because of the tax laws uh, and the incentives, because of the 2017 tax law, uh, the Opportunity Zone makes it even that much more attractive for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, mainly you got you know non-depreciation recapture, uh, so all the income that you get along the way because it's new construction on these homes and land entitlements, uh, you basically get to you know offset against future income. And then any of the appreciation you get is becomes tax free, uh, and this is on top of you know deferring and reducing your capital gains that you get as you put it into a qualified opportunity zone fund. And so that product type is, you know, the build to rent community as we call it, is is attractive in its own right, but with the benefit of an opportunity zone and the tax benefits that come with it. You know, you're able to get cash on cash returns in the low double digits and, you know, two and a half to three X your equity on, on a 10 year hold. And because it's in the opportunity zone, you know, this becomes tax free. And so if you look at project A in an opportunity zone versus project B in a non opportunity zone, you know, the opportunity zone project is going to get the jump ball every time. Now, that product type, what's, what's interesting, what we're seeing in comparison to multifamily, which we're doing some of it, but it's not the traditional multifamily that you know I think most of the people are familiar with. We're doing it more in an urban area um, you know, where there's a mixed use component to it, you know, where you have some residential over some ground floor, commercial. Um, and 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 we think that's a, a more attractive product type than your suburban multifamily. I think the suburban multifamily is going to be under a lot of pressure. Um, and as an example, what we've seen during COVID is really strong lease up demand in our individual single family homes. And about 40% of our tenants have come from multifamily. Um, and, and it could be just, you know, the spacing requirements. People don't want to be holed up at home, um, you know, as, as they're under lockdown in an apartment complex. If you are going to have to be holed up at home, you'd rather have a house with a yard, maybe in a cul-de-sac. Um, and, and the product type is of the single family home in the build and rent community is much different than uh, the consumer in a multifamily. Uh, the, the, the tenant base in a build to rent single family home community tends to be more family and wanting to set down roots, um, you know, be part of the school district, be a fabric of that community, or the multifamily tenant tends to be a lot more transient. Um, and so, you know, we think the multifamily product as it has been historically is going to be under a bit of pressure as you know, the single family rental homes, individual homes continues to mature and evolve. And especially in these build and rent communities that we're creating and some others are creating uh, as well. 
And so it's, it's an interesting analogy though, because people think of residential investing and you know, lump it all together where there are some nuances that you know, I think are gonna have some major impacts and, and allow the SFR product type uh, to outperform you know, your, your more traditional suburban rental multifamily over the years to come. Yeah, there absolutely are some some nuances within the residential asset classes, those different product types, single family versus multifamily, uh, qu- quite a few differences there. So I threw a lot your way in that last question. So I'm going to I'm going to uh, re-ask you again now because I, I think I, I gave you too much to, to answer. <laughs> uh, what, so what, what's the what's the approximate breakdown that you're seeing in your OZ fund of single family versus multifamily versus mixed use? So we're probably going to be 70% uh, what I would call build the rent um, single family. And, and that's that suburban individual home uh, development somewhere between, you know, 50 to 150 individual single family homes uh, with, with their own, you know, yard and, you know, cul-de-sac streets. Uh, the remaining will be split sort of 50-50 between what I would call mixed-use urban uh, development with um, townhomes uh, above commercial or apartments above commercial, uh, and then the remaining would be your 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 more urban infill multifamily. But it's going to be smaller multifamily. It's going to be you know 50 units or less. You know we're we're not going to be developers of you know 200 apartment units. Uh, in your traditional style uh, apartment complex, right? Got it. Got it. And and as far as new construction versus acquiring existing buildings, how, how does that break down? So part of the opportunity zone, in order to maximize your benefits, uh, it, it, it's it's you've got to add a certain level of capital improvements, and so uh, all of our products going to be new construction. Um, and, and, and the way, what's interesting is what we're doing and with the tax code is you're actually able to partner with somebody that's already under construction. And as long as we close on that asset um, in our name prior to a certificate of occupancy, we can still take advantage of all the Opportunity Zone benefits and remain in compliance um, so all of our investors get uh, the benefit of the opportunity zone tax laws. And so, you know, one of the, the big concerns I think a lot of investors have with investing in an opportunity zone is knowing that it has to be new construction to take the benefit of it. And you think, okay, shoot, that's a three-year kind of turnaround. I'm not going to get any cash flow. In actuality, our first project that we've just closed on in our new fund, uh, we just closed last week, is a, you know, a, a, a double duplex, you know, we've got four units of four bedrooms each uh, where we were able to buy it from a developer who was under construction and we bought on it, we bought it prior to him getting a certificate of occupancy and we've already got it leased now. And so, you know, that's, that's an investment where our, it's brand new construction. Um, our investors are getting the benefits of all the opportunity zones and it's now a cash flowing asset. Good. So a little bit of a, a mix there, enough of a mix that you're compliant with the substantial improvement requirements, but also so that it's, you know, it's cash flowing as well uh, through through the entire through, through the entirety of the fund. Is that right? That's correct. And so, you know, 
the the ten year time horizon of opportunity zone investing, if you just say, okay, I invest today, um, when am I going to get cash flow? And the new tax laws allowing us to able to acquire assets that are, you know, under construction and they don't yet have uh, the certificate of occupancy is we can shorten that time frame for investors so they can get return on their investment dollars faster than just going out and buying a you know greenfield piece of property, doing the entitlements, doing the horizontal improvements, the vertical improvements, you know, which could be a three to four year process, which eats up a chunk of your 10 year hold period. And so combination of buying these existing assets that are cash flowing right away um, allows opportunity zone investors to you know increase their their cash flow yield uh, faster than they would if they were just doing complete ground up deals. Right, right, and then yeah, purchasing those uh, new construction buildings right before they get their certificate of occupancy. There's no substantial improvement that needs to be done there. They're considered uh, new buildings not yet put into service, so that's that's very helpful as well for you, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. What what deals have you closed so far? Are there any uh, any assets you've acquired? Uh, any specifics you can share with us? Yeah, so so our first deal I was just mentioning that we closed on last week is this double duplex up in Los Angeles near USC. It's very attractive from a student housing standpoint. Um, you know, especially as you know, there's there's spacing requirements and and it's a you know four units of four bedrooms each with four bathrooms. So, you know, students are able to get their own own unit and their own bathroom and have a shared kitchen uh, and a brand new product, uh, brand new community with parking and all of that. So that's our first deal. Um, we've done another build to rent community in Florida um, out in Lake Lucerne where we had 56 single family homes that uh, we built and have leased up actually during COVID. And we're in the process of getting some agency debt on that right now. We'll probably return about 70% of the equity to the investors. And um, that, that project is you know, on target to have about a 12 and a half, 13% cash on cash you know, yield to the investors after the refi. Um, and we have some other land uh, that we're in control of, uh, similar types of deals. Um, so we've identified about 15 markets around the country uh, that we are really uh, hunting in, so to speak. Um, we, we, we pick these markets for a variety of reasons, but basically, you know, the underlying factor was a lack of uh, recent residential development. Um, but we, but, but these communities have seen out outpaced job growth, income growth. Um, so really that lack of housing. And, and our belief back to our theses is, you know, the values of the residential real estate may bump along over a short period of time, but over the long run, uh, the, the future value will be greater than the present value. And since these are long-term investments, you know, 10 years, um, we, we believe these markets are gonna outperform others uh, in that time frame, both from a, an appreciation value standpoint and a consistency and predictability of cash flow because of the, the school districts, the lifestyle of these communities, um, uh, the job growth of these communities and things like that. 
good. And, you know, earlier, I want to talk with you about some financial projections right now. Earlier, you mentioned, you know, your deals are typically seeing a two and a half to three X return on equity. You mentioned low double digit cash on cash return numbers. What about um, target IRR and cash flow? Can you can you dive into those briefly for us? Yeah, so the IRR, you know, it's, it's going to be, you know, upper teens over the 10 year period. Um, and we're able to achieve that through, you know, in year three, we're anticipating significant uh, return of a lot of the equity through debt refinancing, um, you know, somewhere between 30 and 45% of the equity. Uh, and, and, we're, and we're looking to raise $100 million of equity. So, you know, we're probably going to do somewhere around, you know, 350 to 400 million in total projects. And so we, we aim to return probably, you know, let's call it 35, 40% of that equity after year three uh, upon stabilization of those portfolios. And then that's going to get you to an IRR in the, in the upper teens over a 10 year hold. And then that cash on cash is, is going to be a blended, you know, high single digits, you know, eight to 9% cash on cash of that remaining equity in, in the fund. And, and because it's an opportunity zone fund, um, you know, these, these are these are numbers that you are know, probably pretty consistent in a in a non-opportunity zone fund, you know, projection standpoint. But because of the tax laws, you know, I think what people sometimes don't recognize is these are after-tax projections, right? Because the cash flow uh, is tax-free through the depreciation, and there's no depreciation recapture in the opportunity zone. And then, obviously, the appreciation that one gets through the ownership and holding of the assets over the 10-year period uh, is also tax-free. And so, in comparison to a non-opportunity zone investment, uh, it's it's light years ahead. It's you know, depending on your tax rate, it it it's you know significantly better. Yeah, ab- absolutely. The tax benefits can definitely juice the numbers considerably, depending on your tax rate and uh and which state you're paying income taxes to that could that could help as well further compounding the uh the 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 returns there let's talk about covid now you know we are in early july here we're about 4 months into when this current covid-19 pandemic really hit the united states hard and we started shutting down and the economic and financial markets started turning upside down. How has COVID impacted your strategy? And what are you seeing in the real estate market as a result of, of, uh, of COVID? It's, it's, uh, it sure is a topic, isn't it? Um, so when we went out to raise this Opportunity Zone Fund, we started kind of at the end of 2019, and which seems forever ago. Uh, the market was as rosy as it had ever been. Um, you know, everything was firing on all cylinders. And if anything, our concern was at that time was assets were a bit pricey. And and, and were we going to be able to find anything uh, attractive uh, to make investments in? Because, you know, we'd seen a decade of appreciation and increase in values. And then March hits and COVID hits, and and we had a real fear of, oh man, nobody's going to pay rent. Everybody's out of job, out of out of work. Um, you know what's going to happen? 
and you know now's not the time to be investing and so uh we we sat on our hands a little bit and we 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 also manage you know a large portfolio of our own assets um you know single family residential and so we've got a lot of data um that we can see what's happening in the market and and we were pleasantly surprised that our collections have remained consistent with pre-COVID. And so, you know, our faith in humanity was renewed, so to speak, that uh, despite a lot of rhetoric of, you know, not needing to pay your mortgage or not needing to pay your rent and things like that, uh, everybody's paying rent for the most part. Um, and and that, that reinforced our underlying uh, belief that this is an asset class that is a great place to have your money invested, especially if you're looking to kind of protect, preserve, and, and grow your your investment dollars and have that consistency of income. And so what we've seen with COVID, uh, oddly enough, from an investment standpoint, is the pricing of new acquisitions has improved because um, you know we have cash, and and there there are a lot of people out there with stress, and so there's there's less buyers than there have been, and and there's some stressful, uh, you know there's some there's some distress happening with some of the sellers. So we've been able to pick up deals and renegotiate deals that we had in contract with some better pricing. So our return has actually improved. Um, our, our underwriting returns have improved from our initial assessment of what we were going to have when we were starting this back in 2019, you know, because, you know, the market pricing's changed. And, and what we've seen as well is a greater influx in demand for our product type of single family homes for rent. I think as people are working from home, um, and I don't think that's going to change. I think we're going to see more and more people figure out how to work from home. And we're already trending in that direction, but it's probably been um, advanced a decade uh, through COVID, uh, the work from home or the, you know, this flex workspace. You know, I think COVID has advanced that trend at least a decade, and, and you're going to see a lot more people with these flexible working locations and hours um, more so in the future. And with that, you know, the space in which people are, are working is their home office. And that in our product type of a single family home is a lot more conducive than in an apartment, especially if you're one of the 70 million millennials that are likely to be going through you know, some life changes with starting families and wanting to put down roots, but maybe you don't want to buy a house and make that financial commitment. Um, so, so the demand for our product type has increased substantially. And I think I might have mentioned earlier, you know, our, our lease up through COVID, we've seen 40% of the tenants come out of this suburban multifamily. And I, and I think that's, we're going to continue to see that trend. Um, even post-COVID, um, because of you know the, the comforts and the luxuries of being in a detached single-family home versus a shared wall, you know, suburban apartment. Right. No, that's a interesting perspective you have. I've been trying to pull out 
silver linings from a lot of the COVID-19 discussions I've had with my guests on this show over the past few months. And for you, you know, definitely a big increase in demand for your SFR product type. And that's incredible that you suspect it's advanced a decade, that trend, and it may very well end up being a long-term effect of, uh, of COVID all kind of happening at a, at a relatively short compacted time period. Is there any, anything else interesting that's resulted from COVID for you? Any, anything else in, in respect to your, your typical investor base? Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if it's COVID related, but, um, I think it's, it's probably not COVID related, but I think it's just opportunity zone related. And, you know, here we are in July, the tax returns, uh, you know, deadline got extended. And so that's coming up. And, and one of the things we've seen, uh, from investors is, you know, if you've got this hard date, that's now coming up with your tax deadline. And and one of the things we've seen that's pretty interesting uh, is is we've got a few people that have reached out that have these 1031 exchanges that uh, were were in place, ready to get locked and loaded. And, you know, maybe they were going to go into a shopping center. And now that shopping center doesn't make sense anymore. And I guess that is COVID related um, because retails, you know, retailers aren't opening up stores and, and and nobody really wants to catch that falling knife. And we've had a few investors, you know, sort of uh, implode their 1031 exchange and, and reinvest those uh, exchange monies into our opportunity zone um, because their, their 1031 deal, you know, sort of blew up or they weren't able to find a, a project that was as attractive for them as they were uh, otherwise. And so, you know, I think that is, uh, you know, an interesting, uh, not phenomenon, but, you know, as asset classes are changing and the values are changing and, and how, you know, how do you underwrite an office building or a shopping center today? And if you're going to be putting a 1031 exchange money into one um, and you're afraid of catching that falling knife, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing, you know, more of those investors come our way that already had previous commitments to 1031s that they're now pulling out of those. And, you know, the, the type of investors that we're seeing is, you know, all high net worth accredited investors. And, um, you know, the stock market's been on a crazy run. And, you know, the one thing that's pretty in common with those that are, are you know, high income, high earners, or have had some some gains is, you know, how do you make your your after tax dollars work the best for you? And you know, we've got a lot of wealth managers that have clients sitting on taxable gains uh, in equities or other asset classes that are now selling out of those positions and investing them into you know, an opportunity zone like ours, because they can lock in those gains, uh, lower the rates that they have to pay on them, and defer the payment of those, as opposed to just keeping it in there and, and riding that roller coaster, um, you know, like, like they traditionally have been. And so, yeah, wealth managers, RIAs, you know, tax advisors, um, you know, are all a great resource and in, in, of, of potential clients and investors of ours. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, that huge 
stock market sell-off in late February, early March when this whole thing was hitting. Uh, Opportunity Zone's kind of coming to the rescue here for a lot of investors with capital gains looking for deferral. Uh, now that the deadline's been extended by the IRS to the end of this year for them, I think uh, certainly a lot of opportunities there for for high net worth individual investors and their wealth advisors and RIAs to consider. Uh, well, Jeff, thanks for joining me today on this episode. It's been great chatting with you, getting your perspective and having you share some of your expertise with our listeners. Where can our listeners go to learn more about you and Pintar Investment Company? Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. Uh, you know, the easiest spot is you can, you know, please visit our website, uh, www.pintarinvestmentcompany.com. Um, you can always call us as well here. Our number is 949 276 41 and you can ask for me, Jeff Pintar, or Tom Casper, who's head of our investor relations. And, you know, we'd love to, you know, talk about what we're doing and see if there's opportunities to work together. Perfect. Thanks, Jeff. And for our listeners out there today, I will have show notes for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Jeff and I discussed on today's show. And I'll be sure to include a link to Pintar Investment Company and their phone number as well. Jeff, again, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jimmy. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.